Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders brought to you by Wavelength. Our specialism is bringing the outside world in. And over the last 14 years, we have taken thousands of leaders physically and digitally inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired and progressive organizations in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe, providing them with world-class external inspiration, education, and provocation. Hi, I'm Liz Mosley, and welcome to the Making Waves podcast. And in this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Amanda Scott from Personal Boardroom. She and I are here to talk today about the importance of building networks, how important it is to help build your career, where to start, and if you're somebody like me who thinks of themselves as a terrible networker, how to get over that fear. You have to be the engine of your own network. You have to make the time and the effort to build and maintain relationships. Apparently 80% of us say that networking is important. How do I develop? How do I grow? Where do I get the courage? Where do I get the feedback? Where do I get the support and the anchoring that I need to keep pivoting and to keep changing through, you know, what could now be, you know, a 40 to 50 year career? Where are the gaps? And where is it going to be a really good use of your time to think about how to find new people that can help you to evolve to the next stage of what you do. Power roles, which are the people that are really the catalysts in your networks, the people that create introductions for you. Your nerve giver, that person is somebody that reminds you of your values. Hi Amanda, lovely to see you. Very lovely to see you Liz. It's great to have you. Um, I said in my little introduction there, um, the dreaded networking and speaking as somebody who has only quite recently um, begun to come to terms with networking as a thing have brought all sorts of negative thoughts and prejudices to my attitude to it why do you think so many people feel the way I felt up until quite recently sort of allergic to networking I love that word allergic <laughs> and I think you immediately speak to almost everybody in the room that I go in and start enthusiastically using the word networks to. So what my experience is that I want to talk about networks, what makes for a good network, how you can make it better, how you can identify what you might be missing. But actually what everybody hears is networking. And it's almost the thing that we need to address and discuss right up front before I think anybody is opening open to some of the ideas or the challenges that I might bring to that area. And why we have an allergy to the idea of networking, I think probably stems from lots of different kind of behavioral and socialized uh, fears and feelings we have about meeting strangers, about possibly worrying too much about interacting with people if we think that we are looking for something we don't like being seen as coming across as a taker I think all of us like to have a an, an authentic and consistent view of ourselves and I think going out and deliberately trying to meet people and exchange business cards for a lot of people feels quite false um, so that's sort of some of the I think the kind of general things that we feel I think there's lots more practical reasons why inside organizations our work is defined by tasks and things that we're trying to get done, which mean that we focus much more on spending our time with talking to, uh, interacting and exchanging with people that can kind of help us get our jobs done, get things done. And we had this view that somehow networking or building a network is something that happens outside of our work and unless we're one of those few people and I do meet them and Adrian Simpson is one of them who just loves the idea of kind of stepping into a room full of strangers uh, it's not something that maybe we do in a routine or a habitual way and therefore it's sort of unfamiliarity is, is is a reason why those ideas that you have might continue to persist even though your experience, I mean, I heard you say until very recently. Um, so it would be lovely in a way for anybody listening in to know a little bit more about well, what happened very recently that kind of switched you from, you know, that view to something slightly different. And if I was to advance an idea for you, it's that when you started to do it, it wasn't quite so terrible and it didn't have such a devastating impact in reality as it might have done in your head if you were kind of 
playing out what was going to happen. That's absolutely right. It wasn't quite so terrible. And, and to answer your question, because I think it is interesting. I think I've been slightly ambushed um, more recently by the impact or the sort of outcomes of my um, nervousness or cynicism, perhaps might be a better word in my case about networking. I think you, didn't your career start in advertising, Amanda? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, straight out of uh, straight out of university, I, I, I graduated from Trinity at a time in Ireland when there were no jobs, and I went straight to London, and I had a job in an advertising agency. And in some ways, I think it's that shift or that trigger by actually moving country, moving job, something happening to you that actually propels a lot of us into finding ourselves in situations where we simply have to build new relationships. Mm. We, you know, we, we have to rely on other people to help us. We can't do it all on our own. So, um, yes, that was definitely... The reason I start, the reason I asked the question, I think, is because I, I worked um, with um, the advertising industry in my last um, uh, big job before um, where I am now and was a chief marketing officer of a really big advertising industry event happens in the south of France called Cannes Lions it's sort of the Oscars of the advertising industry and um, really the reason why people go there is to meet other people in the industry to sort of catch up with old friends to share ideas build relationships there's a bit of a marketplace but it's not really about that it's really is meant to be about relationships and of course as the chief marketing officer of this thing I made loads of beautiful marketing materials and told a great story about how brilliant it was to go to Cannes and to invest in yourself and in your inspiration your brain and all of that is to do with relationships and the relationship between the people you know and the ideas that you can have, which is the sort of lifeblood of the advertising industry. It is their, their product. Um, and all the while was absolutely crippled with social anxiety, with imposter syndrome, with there's always somebody more interesting than me, possibly in Cannes, that is true. There probably is always somebody slightly more interesting than me. Um, but it, it, I really feel that, although that was relatively recently in my career, I really feel that I sort of never quite got my head out of that space, that feeling of being there in those 10 intense days. And then more recently, I thought to myself, I'm gonna have to somehow come to terms with this. We're post pandemic, we're back in the real world everybody's enjoying I think to a, a lot having more of a blend of not always on the zoom and a little bit more real and a little bit more of what I think people are very negative about small talk I'm quite up for small talk just chit-chatting about how is your journey and what's the weather like and all that kind of stuff I think it's nice it's sort of malleable and soft and and just a sort of easy way to get into something and um I thought to myself actually I probably will be better at my job if I reconnect with people that I used to see a lot for whatever reason, tons of people, people who were suppliers, people who were colleagues, peers, people who worked for me. And I've really enjoyed it. Now, ha once having the opportunity to be able to go and meet somebody for a coffee for no reason other than to meet them for a coffee, see how they're doing and check in has been a genuinely a real pleasure. And I think that's probably the shift when I thought of it, not in terms of I'm going to do some networking because I want to X, Y, Z, I'm going to do some networking because actually I'm just going to go and meet up with Marion for a coffee because I really liked her. And it just feels like a very, the pressure is off and learning to trust a little bit more that mostly people are just thrilled to hear from you. And it is quite nice to have a conversation with no end point other than to just enjoy each other's company for 45 minutes and then tootle back to your real life. It's, it, and, and I, it seems like such an obvious aha moment, but I think that for me was the thing that made the difference. I think that's lovely. I, I think you you've touched on, I hope so many things that people you might be driving or running or sitting in a cafe with a, a pen and paper will, will resonate with their with their experience. I think you described in a way almost a kind of a pre-pandemic environment in which our networks were really kind of probably coming at us a lot and and uh, quite overwhelming. Um, and there is quite a there's you know there's research. Um, Liz, that uh, would uh, illustrate, I think, your experience of actually walking into something like Canline with hundreds of thousands of people, all in a way very aware, sort of overly self-conscious of kind of why they're there and why other people might think that they're there. Um, and uh, there was a lovely piece of research done by uh, uh, two I think Stanford researchers, I think Gina and Caschiaro called um, uh, Networking Makes You Feel Dirty. 
and I don't know <laughs> if you've come across it, but um, if, if not, I'm sure there's a link that we could signpost people to. And one of the things that they tried to get at in that piece of research was um, getting people to to talk about kind of how they felt in different situations. And so I think they posed a couple of different questions. They posed a question, think about a time. So this for you would be, think about that time when you were back in, in Cannes. Um, and uh, and they actually asked, asked them to do some uh, word completion tests because people quite find it quite hard to actually describe how they feel. Um, and in the word completion test, they had words like uh, with, started with a W and ended with an H. And what they found was that when people were recalling those kind of experiences, as opposed to experiences where they might be just socialising spontaneously with their friends, they were twice as likely to fill the word wash instead of wish. They had an S and a P with two letters in the middle and um, people um, uh, filled in the word soap more likely uh, than they filled the word in, I think, step. And they had another one, S and hour. I think it was shower and shaker. And um, so people were, were actually felt that they almost wanted to kind of rid themselves of okay. something uh, in that research. So um, so you weren't alone, you and the 7,000 people at, uh, at Candleline <laughs> kind of feeling those things. So there's something about the self-consciousness and the deliberateness that actually makes us feel uncomfortable. But I think what you said in terms of the journey that we've all been on and everybody listening in today has been on is that period of extraordinary kind of deprivation, if you like. We are social creatures. We like having incidental chats that don't necessarily always lead to something and we were incredibly deprived of of that in the rather nice spontaneous um uh, interaction that we had um before the pandemic you know we were all kind of locked in and again i think you know research uh, again hbr had a, a lovely article by um marissa king talking about actually how we kind of turtled up during the pandemic and what happened was we turned up up, if you imagine we kind of turned into so we we spent more and more time talking to the people we already know in our close close circles but what we missed out on were all those other people that in our environments we don't necessarily think about every day but we might bump into and have conversations with and um so they're people we know or it could even be people that we just bump into Mm. and and that that actually has you know a number of of um of kind of knock-on effects so I know you are going to be wanting to talk a little bit later about sort of resilience if you Mm -hmm. like but if you can imagine if your network is really kind of overly focused on just the small same number of people and people in their jobs you know we get very locked into a calendar of meetings which means that we're just talking to the same people about the same things in the same way Mm -hmm. but during the pandemic what we missed out on with those nice incidental meetings where you go and get a cup of coffee with somebody or you're standing in a lift with somebody and so maybe coming out of that actually we've got a you know a, a kind of an appetite for it again maybe we kind of you know we appreciate the value of it which for somebody that is a little bit allergic to networking might kind of step them over that that kind of um difference that gap between knowing and doing if you like someone like me I'm I am a Johnny come lately when it came to networking but there I'm sure there are lots of people as you say listening who are thinking they're still where I was you know a couple of years ago and that hopefully there isn't going to be another pandemic so that trigger hopefully is a sort of one and done what are some of the other things that might be that might happen in the normal course of people's careers that would sort of get them over the hump of okay I am actually going to have to get my head around it. I'm going to have to get to grips with this if you haven't you know, done the right thing from the beginning and been sort of consciously building a network for yourself. Where do you start? Well, I think that's where the, the work that I started doing about um, seven or eight years ago with uh, Zella King. Let me, should I tell you a little bit do, about yeah, um, yeah. Because um, what, what we, we try to convey in a relatively short period of time is a very simple framework which might give anybody a place to start. Mm-hmm. And um, we call it your personal boardroom. And it's a way of identifying from the large range of people that you might know in your in your network, if you like, a core cool set of relationships with people that can provide you with with really great specific things. And so if I just talk a little bit about where the work came from. So I come from very much the kind of practitioner coaching end of working with people through career transition and change and coming up again and again with um, the experience of working with people who 
need to rethink their work, either for reasons to do with the organisation deciding that their job needs to change, or they themselves reaching a point in their career where they want to, they want to make a shift. And there's lots of different um, ways of working with somebody like that. And it's really great to kind of uh, encourage them to start to think about, you know, um, what's important to them, what they're curious about, what they're interested in, what their kind of strengths and things are. But in the course of those conversations, I was very aware that people who had been working particularly in the same job, in the same organization for some time, suddenly confronted with that change really lacked the kind of relationships with people that might um, help them to connect with very kind of different groups, different businesses, um, different ways of thinking, um, people who are kind of, you know, very different from them in kind of age and career stage that could be a source either of new connections, new opportunities, or new ideas and new ways of thinking. And when I met uh, Zella and in a way we were an interesting kind of network story in ourselves so Zella came very much from a kind of an academic background had been doing a lot of work looking at in a way the network science you know what makes for a good network and what doesn't and we were swimming in very different pools but we were we met through a kind of a joint connection and found that um, we did that classic relationship building thing. We connected on our similarities. We were two women, probably in a similar age and stage, if you like, but we really benefited from our differences. We, I bought the kind of, uh, you know, practical side of, I know what people are like in a room and I know what they object to and the, what they resist. And Zella was able to bring these brilliant kind of visualizations, which actually take a lot of the kind of emotion out of it, which shows where network um, uh, structure can really create opportunity for people. And so we pulled our thinking and developed this simple framework. It's called your personal boardroom and really built on the idea that, you know, maybe you, Liz, are the chief executive of your own your own ink. And you have a set of seats, if you like, around you. And what you want to do is you want to have, ideally, the best possible person in each of those seats. So if you think about it, you, you, you know, in a, in a classic boardroom, you have your kind of chief financial officer, marketing officer, all those different people. So we talk about roles that people can play. And we just talk about three categories of roles, those people that bring you that novelty, those new ideas, sense of kind of what's, you know, what's what the future could look like and deep expertise, um, insights, understanding about your customers in different ways. And then we've got what we call the power roles, which are the people that are really the catalysts in your networks, the people that create introductions for you, the people that um, are prepared to endorse and sponsor and make you kind of visible in meetings that you're not in what we call unlockers which are the ultimately the decision makers these are people that hold the keys to things that you want like a budget to do something you want to do um, access to data that will really help you to kind of solve a problem or you know resource like other people's time which will help you to kind of uh, develop your project and then we talk about influencers, those people. And we really ask people to think about, say, the influence landscape around them. So if they are trying to find a new job or they're trying to look for an opportunity, you know, who is it that might be talking to the people that could actually open the doors for them? You know, who are the opinion formers that other people respond to? And obviously that's very context related. It's really thinking individually about you and your work um, and thinking about, you know, your own kind of map of who you know and who's talking to who. And then we just talk about the third pillar of your personal boardroom, which again are what we call the development roles. So people tend to think about their networks in this very outward facing way. But thinking about a personal boardroom and tapping into the resources that people have that can help you, what you're also talking about is how do I um, develop, how do I grow, where do I get the courage, where do I get the feedback, where do I get the support and the anchoring that I need to keep pivoting and to keep changing through 
you know, what could now be, you know, a 40 to 50 year career. So the work that we do, I think, helps people to think about their network from a slightly different perspective. So it takes some of the emotions out because you can start to kind of map people against those roles and think about where you have some really great people that you want to kind of reward and affirm for the roles that they play. But also in the context of where you're headed next, where are the gaps and where is it going to be a really good use of your time to think about how to find new people that can help you to evolve to the next stage of what you do? I'm smiling, Amanda, because um, there was a lot of great insight in what you you said. There was something you said right at the beginning that I just think is lovely um, about when you met Zella, that you connected through your similarities, but you benefited from your differences, um, which is which is a lovely way to, to summarize in a way. It's not totally dissimilar to how great managers and leaders have for a long time thought about building a team with complementary skills and you know trying to build something that's greater than the sum of its parts and, and so on. I'm also smiling at, at um embarrassed for myself how how much I congratulate myself from suddenly twigging that oh maybe the way that we build a network is not who's useful to me but just who do I like and I thought what a brilliant insight I've had there somewhat somewhat more sophisticated than that and what you're talking about with the personal boardroom but it is interesting that that we as leaders um do think in terms of and I wanted to um chat um to you a little bit about how networks matter within organizations and, and, and not just trying to sort of assemble people from around your whole career. But if you stay in one organization for a long time and are successful in that organization, doesn't mean to say to your point that your job isn't going to have to change and there'll be moments of change and, and, and so on throughout that. But you, you do have to sort of operate within the organization. You do have to find people who can unlock doors for you, who can facilitate things that you might need and resources, people who can lift you up when you've had a terrible day or a meeting's gone badly. So we're doing those things naturally anyway, but we're just not think of it in network terms. Yes. And so I just wanted to go back because that um, that phrase that you picked up on, I'd love to say it was mine, but actually it belongs <laughs> to a wonderful um, network uh, network scientist called Valdis Krebs. So if anybody wants to look up Valdis Krebs, he was the one that kind of framed the connect on your similarities, but benefit from your differences. So That's very honourable and well yeah, done. No, 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 I've always loved it. it. <laughs> I've always loved it. I think I used it as a sign off um, uh, for, for, a, for a period of time because I find it very helpful. So um, so what what, uh, what you were asking about is kind of, I suppose, is the real world of operating effectively inside an organization, yeah. um, which is really what an awful lot of people spend an awful lot of their time doing. And part of that is recognizing that uh, organizations, however flat they become, are still have hierarchies in them. And some people control resources inside those organizations. And so however kind of idealistic I would like to be about building a really wonderful, flourishing network, for me, I have to recognize the constraints in which I'm operating. And if I'm, if I'm inside an organization and um, my success is determined by my ability to succeed in the projects I'm working on, then I have to understand how the relationships operate around me, because um, although we have, you know, we work in a much more kind of interdependent way than we did before. So many of us work in kind of areas of sort of knowledge more than just kind of making things. And therefore, we really need to understand um, you know, who's making decisions about what and who. I mean, if you're thinking about even forming a project team mm. and you want to join that project, that decision may well be taking place way outside your particular function and your particular department. So one of the activities that we do to kind of help to raise people's awareness of who they rely on right now and where those people are located. And again, anybody listening in today who can grab a pen and a little and piece of paper or they've got a mobile in front of them we just ask people for a minute just to jot down the names of the people that they rely on for success in their job and in their career and we've been doing that now probably for about seven or eight years and what we find is actually a remarkably consistent pattern 
um, across different organizations, different um, uh, different people doing different jobs. Um, so if you kind of jot down all the names of the people that you rely on, um, you can do a quick kind of exercise to kind of see, well, where are those people related? So what you can do is you can then after a minute, just strike out the names of all the people that you've written down who are in your team. Um, and then strike out the names of all the people that might be considered to be in the same function or department or business area. Or if that doesn't work for you in your job, all the people that kind of do the same work as you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then finally, if you just jot down all the names of the people that you've written down who might be considered friends and family, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see who's left. And consistently, and it, obviously it does depend on people's All mine role. are gone. They've all gone now. <laughs> well, I probably didn't give you a minute, Liz. But so truthfully, that's everybody, is it? So, yeah. So, so and I wonder if it's because I have a very blurred friends and people who I've worked with and former colleagues, those things are very blurry in, in my mm. world. So if you really do have to take out anybody who you would consider a friend, that, that was the last fell swoop that took the rest of the people off the list. Maybe I need to sort of bend the rules slightly. Well, no, it's a, it is a bit artificial. I'm not <laughs> going to say that you can't have friends. Friends aren't valuable and useful. They absolutely are. And you can add them back in later. But it is it is an illustration um, often of actually how small that group of people is that actually you yeah. rely on. Yeah. And um, so the second stage, certainly within an organization, is to start to think about um, if you think about some of the roles that we talked about, where you where you look to for sponsorship. Yeah. and who you go to for expertise and who you might talk to that helps you understand your customer. What we encourage people to do is to try to stretch out and think rather than relying on the same, the same people that might be really quite close to you, because in some ways they carry a lot of the same knowledge and information and, and insight as you do. But to think of the value of actually investing in a relationship with somebody who might be further out in the organization that yeah. in a way can can help you form a, a better, bigger picture of what we, might be going on, that can help you to understand your job in, in, a, in, a, in a wider context, particularly for sponsorship. Again, if I come back to, you know, people who make decisions about who works on teams, often it's not the person that you report directly into. That decision may well be happening in another function, in another business department, in, in another area. So if you're not visible and you're not on people's radar and in the end people aren't talking about you, which is sort of what influences kind of can shape agendas around, then actually you might be doing an absolutely brilliant job, but you may not benefit from being able to kind of find new opportunities elsewhere or mm. understand actually how things might be evolving or changing in other parts of the organization. So in some ways in our work, we tend to get quite bounded by the specific tasks that we've got, the, the specific kind of part of the organization that we operate in. And actually, and that's fine as long as nothing changes, but we all know everything is evolving at a faster and faster speed so encouraging people to really stretch themselves to think a little bit further out which might then mean making time to go and invest in building relationships with people they're not immediately familiar with and they don't immediately have the same degree of commonality um, is actually what makes for a I think a stronger core strategic network it's a really it's a really great provocation actually are people talking about you um, it's some, something we might typically sort of re, um, recoil from. I don't want them to be talking about me, but for the right reasons, of course, that's a really good, it's a really good test. Um, I, I'm picking up as well on that little exercise we did, and I've written yeah. down people's initials here and then merrily crossed them all out at the end. Um, these are people that you rely on. Now, that that's a high bar. The question is, who do you rely on in your job? Um, and I, I, it, does, it does link to, to this question I have around resilience there's a lot of discussion um particularly um or has intensified i think since the pandemic about people's health and well-being at work what isn't isn't an appropriate and acceptable you know level of commitment that is required by um uh, employers and employees and all of these things feel like it's a very live renegotiation about what is and isn't expected expected of people in the context of their jobs at all levels of, of hierarchy right at the very top and right at the very entry level positions and um one of the words that has 
I think, found itself in a sort of quite a fraught space during the course of that renegotiation is resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of maybe sort of eight to 10 years or so ago, I went on one of those quite old school, I think now, management training weekends where we were sort of made to climb a big pole in the dark and, you know, walk over glass and things like that. The whole thing was awful. I hated it from start to finish, but it was all designed to build resilience. I'm doing air quotes. Um, and, I, and I sort of really resisted it at the time. Um, but I think now people talk about resilience. They're just a little bit more circumspect. I, I pick up on this idea that you have to just keep going regardless um, is a sort of it's disguised as resilience training, but really it's about sort of piling on the pressure. And I wonder how that relates to that question of people you rely on. Mm. It, 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 I'm sort of it, there's, a, there's a tension somewhere in all of that space where we, we we do rely on the people around us to support us nurture us challenge us help us and um, but we also need to give each other a break as well yeah that's um it's it's really nice in a way we we phrase the question about reliance uh openly in a way it's for people to interpret who mm. they rely on so mm. some people might just write down people who are kind of directly involved in their work um but actually i think we we encourage people to think more broadly which is where we have these development roles in the personal boardroom so you can imagine you've got the seats there for people that can challenge you that people can um, improve your performance by giving you timely feedback but also there's there's two important seats we call one your nerve giver and and that person is somebody that reminds you of your values I suppose what 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 you're what you're there at, to do in your job but equally not to do. Um, particularly, we people sort of say, well, who plays a nerve giver for you? And I think examples are often um, people have cited actually a former boss, somebody that might have moved away from the organisation, and they've kind of reframed the relationship so that it's somebody that they might meet who could help them in a way take a little bit of perspective uh, on the you know the pressures they're facing that they're under um so it's somebody that kind of knows you well enough that can help in those difficult times to mm-hmm. for you to kind of stick to your purpose whatever that is um actually we had a really nice example i worked with a software company recently and um and these were groups of very intensively working software programmers And they've said, and in a way, these are not legacy organizations. These are new organizations forming around the work that people are doing today, not, you know, not that they were doing kind of 50 or 100 years ago when a lot of our work practices were put into place. And and they talked about um, people would call you out if if you were producing too much code. You know, people would say to you, you're in you're doing too much you need it's time for you to kind of step back and and so within their group that that was actually something which was culturally acceptable and it was approved of so in a way they were thinking about their collective resilience as a team I hadn't come across it before so I I think that's why I kind of noted it and uh, and it was just this year and I thought it was interesting Um, so what we have found in organizations often we ask you know who 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 is your nerve giver who would you go to when when you're under that kind of pressure or particularly as a leader maybe you've made a very very difficult set of decisions you know maybe you've you've had to make a lot of people redundant in a way who do you go to that kind of keeps you upright and um and it really depends on cult the culture in the organization so some people will say it's culturally acceptable for us to have people who play that role within the organization i have to say my experience is not uh, it's not always the case and people would say no that's what that's what home life is for that's what those friends and family that I wrote down that you made me take off the list <laughs> that's really what they do they're the yeah. ones that in a way have to pick up the pieces afterwards so um so I'm not really fully answering your question because I think our our perspective is very much about people feeling like they are the more the agents in charge of the relationships that they build that support them in their careers so that's a very if you like that's taking a very individual perspective and I think the question that you're really asking is actually more directed to people who are running these organizations at the moment Um, I read an article yesterday about somebody who'd been appointed as the chief remote officer 
C-R-O, and it was the first time I'd come across that term. And that was somebody whose job it is when they wake up in the morning every day to think about the remote way in which people are uh, trying to get the organization's work done and how it can be done better. So in a way that it, and in the article, it was um, talking about somebody who'd been appointed, saying that maybe in five years time, we won't need that, but we are going through a kind of an enormous shift in the way that we do our work inside organizations. And a lot of those, so I think a lot of those areas are up for grabs, up for debate and up for discussion. So I'd really like there'd be somebody else on this call, Liz, that we could <laughs> ask that question we to. Could riff on it. Um, I'm interested in, in chief remote officer. I mean, Amanda, it is almost like we planned it. It's beautiful. I was going to ask you, as somebody who lives in the beautiful west of Ireland, you've obviously worked re remotely for a long time. And, and, I, and, I, and I love the sort of corollary of that being that your specialism is in helping people build amazing, you know, nurturing, connected relationships. What I wonder what you have learned in this last couple of years when all the rest of us unenlightened people have had to get to grips with remote working sort of by necessity and there's been a lot of talk about how that's changed and so on I wonder what what you might have learned in that in this period as someone who's been doing this for a long time sort of observing everybody else adjusting well it, well, it is interesting in a way because I am in many ways I'm naturally very very isolated um, and in brackets you can, it can make you very, very lonely. So I think I appreciate and I value relationships in a way that maybe I didn't when I was doing, you know, very busy jobs. I was an agent representing actors for some time and I worked in advertising before that. So I think when you're working within an organizational structure and you're surrounded by people that, you know, there's nothing particularly special about them. Uh, you're in a way you're fighting off relationships rather than trying to cultivate them to manage your time. Whereas suddenly when you, if you're working as I do a lot of the time, completely on your own, um, the, the thing is it, you don't have a natural network around. You have to, you have to be the engine of, of your own network. You have to make the time and the effort to build and maintain relationships because otherwise they will just fall away and I think one of the hardest adjustments for people who were used to being inside an organization was that you know they would say well it was so wonderful because I could just bump you know I might have the best conversation today by talking to somebody the couple of minutes before I went into a meeting or having a chat with them in the corridor when I came out and it was all that sort of incidental interaction, which I think we mentioned right at the beginning, that fell away. And it doesn't exist in the same way remotely. I mean, obviously, we've got all these wonderful kind of conversational channels like Slack and things like that, which are doing some of that work. But I think you have to accept that if you're working remotely, you can't rely on other people virtually knocking on your door saying you know how are you today what's going on for you I think you have to accept that if if you don't if you're not proactive that those relationships will will wither away and certainly when I moved to the west of Ireland I had to I had to work much much harder to maintain relationships and to um and to sort of keep investing so I think when the pandemic happened I actually I actually just thought welcome to my world mm -hmm. and people probably found my remote working a little bit strange and I think suddenly actually everybody's lives looked just like mine but if I was to make an observation about what people were saying and uh, in all the virtual work that we did in those two years um, it was the lack of novelty and new ideas that they really struggled with working remotely and um, and they would say you know they would they would say because when you're in virtual meetings, in a way they are very operationally focused, they're quite task specific. And what they don't tend to do unless they're kind of designed in a really thoughtful way is to create space for people just to allow ideas to emerge. So I think when we're collaborating in a remote way using technology, you know, I, I think we're really, we're, we're very focused on outcomes. We're very focused on, you know, starting at a specific time and ending yeah. on another. And, and I did hear you say that perhaps for enjoyment or for kind of creative stimulation, some of the conversations that you um, are enrich you the most are the ones where you don't necessarily know where they're going to lead, don't necessarily know how long they're going to go on for. And, um, and you don't necessarily anticipate that when you start them, that you will end up having the kind of conversation that you then have. And so people working remotely, I think, find it harder to 
to create either the time or to set up the kind of spaces in which they can um, they can allow for that kind of enrichment and that kind of, of stimulation or kind of creative expression themselves through conversation. And I, I think that's something that we're still working on um, and, and we haven't necessarily found the solution to. Agree, I definitely. But I'm sure there are people out there who are working on that problem and it would be lovely if they got in contact with you, Liz, yes, afterwards with some of their ideas. They were shouting into the air on their train journeys. I know the answer to this. Yes, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I said it before, I'm, I'm a big fan of small talk. One of the things I do is I sort of, help um other people figure out how to run a you know a good virtual event that is engaging for people and so on and so forth and, I, and one of the things i really go out of my way to impress upon them is all the bits that happen around the edge of the presentation or the webinar whatever the thing is that you're meeting if say you've got an invited speaker the things you say to that person before you start are some of the most important things that you will say because if it puts the person at their ease have you got a glass of water are you warm enough is the light shining in your face all of that normal stuff they're nervous too mm. and they, they will remember how you make them feel that's a famous quote that I should attribute I can't think who is it that said that but I, I, I'm, I'm a really strong believer and like you say when we all went and worked from home, all of that incidental nicety, it just somehow fell away. And we were very focused on getting through this meeting and then getting on to the next one. And, and, and I think um, it, was, it, it was part of what contributed to that feeling of loneliness that we all had. It was just a less human, human time somehow. And um, you also mentioned in amongst what you just said, a couple of the real common objections. So we, we like you say, having a network personal boardroom or however you want to refer to it takes time and effort and those are two of the things perhaps people wouldn't articulate it in terms of effort reasons why not reasons why I haven't reasons why I don't I'm much too busy to focus on all that navel gazing nonsense um and you know th there's a sort of an effort level which can disguise all sorts of other um uh, objections let's do some sort of objection handling to people mm. who might be thinking I really do probably need to get my head around building this myself whether you're at the beginning of your career or the end um I haven't got time so how many hours are there in the week I think there's <laughs> 168 hours in the week in which we have to do everything and I you know well I think networks are important what I've recognized time and time again is that nobody goes to bed at night worrying that they haven't got a good network they actually worry about much more pressing and much more immediate things and yet we know that actually who who we surround ourselves with has a, a huge influence um, and the challenge with networks is they take they do take time I mean if I asked you now your network probably represents kind of where you are now it might represent where you've been but it won't represent where you're headed next unless unless you make the time yeah. for it so I encourage people to really think about your network is something that actually is a part of every conversation you have, everything that you do, rather than um, try to compartmentalise it. And therefore, it never quite gets onto your priority list in the same way. Um, the, again, Liz, I mean, the, re the research would bear, it, bear out what you said about um, the difference between kind of thinking and doing. And I, I think apparently 80% of us say that networking is important, and yet over... 50% are honest enough to say when things are going well in my job it's probably just not a priority so I think time really is just what we say but I think what sits beneath it is either a lack of awareness or understanding that actually the network you have now might actually be limiting or constraining you from being able to develop in a way that you both need and want to so and you know overly focused on kind of delivering the KPIs or the you know the, the the deadlines or the performance targets right now but if if you think about how your job has changed you know from now versus five years ago and how likely it is to be unrecognizable in another five years time mm. then actually taking it's only half an hour a week to think about a new you know a different person to talk to or a different topic of conversation to have that's you know that is really going to enable you to actually to grow and evolve and develop um so i think it's like pensions or all of those other long-term investments i think if you if you try to look for payback in the short term it doesn't exist but actually i think if you see this as something that is a part of how your career is going to evolve and develop then actually 
ring fencing a small amount of time each week to say, uh, and maybe that conversation, that person that you reach out to, I, I think you mentioned reconnecting with people. Mm. That's what I wanted to, uh, that side I did want to say. If you're worried about meeting strangers and starting from scratch, it's much better to think about all the people that you haven't seen in the last two years that you liked and that you can return to and just ask, how are you now as a starting point? And again, there is you know, research which shows that actually it's incredibly efficient if you want to talk about sort of productivity of your time to actually go back to somebody that you have known because the trust and the relationship is there. Maybe there was a time when you worked together or they were a supplier and you did something together. But actually in that, the course of those two years, you'll have done certain things, they'll have done certain things. You can really benefit then from actually talking about things that you both know that are different and valuable to each other. So there's a real power now in reconnecting. We seem to have, I don't know, a bit of an allergy, possibly, about picking up the phone or making contact with somebody that we haven't seen for a couple of years. But again, the evidence would show that most people, and I don't know if anybody got in touch with you Liz and say I haven't yeah. you know just was thinking about you and I haven't seen you for a long time I mean how does that make you feel it's lovely I've had it's just been absolutely a joy and actually what's been I'm, I'm never quite sure um whether the people who sort of try to use tools you know technology tools LinkedIn being the obvious example and whether that sort of works as a facility for true networking relationship buildings but certainly for me as a sort of super handy old school Rolodex you know, I scrolled through all these connections of people, lots of whom I had sort of forgotten about on a day-to-day basis and thinking, oh, that guy was brilliant that we did that project together. And it's just a really lovely sort of way to dig up old memories. And then, um, as you say, reconnect with people who can actually remind you. Also, they're usually in a totally different space in their career now. So then you're into a whole nother world of catching up and, and new ideas and things. So it's it's just a real pleasure. It makes you feel lovely. And I said, I think, again, somebody who's listening to the podcast today, I would just say, just think of three people, three people that you haven't seen in the last couple of years, far off a WhatsApp message, email, phone, nice old school, whatever you like, and, and have a chat with them and, and, and reconnect. And, and, and that often, I think, can sort of just get you back in the, can develop a bit of that kind of muscle again, yeah. talking to people who aren't just involved in your, your day to day. I do say it's endlessly um, fascinating to me that um, uh, senior people or people who've been, you know, around, you know, a couple of decades in their careers, at least, um, we sort of can indulge ourselves in some quite self-serving beliefs, even when they're negative. So if I say, oh, I'm much, I, I, I'm much too busy to do the networking thing, it makes me feel good because it means that I'm important and, you know, sort of busyness and status and all that and all that kind of thing. If I say, on the other hand, you know what, I'm in that mindset oh, I, 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 nobody will want to hear from me. I'm not interesting enough. It's self-serving. It might make me feel bad, but it's self-serving because it's kind of a comforting kind of bad. It lets me off the hook from having to confront those things that I know I need to confront. Um, and as you say, a brilliant way to get over the sort of sense of it's going to be awkward is just to sort of ring up people that you know you get on with. And then you don't have to work, talk about work at all if you don't want to. You could just talk about who's kids and where do you go on holiday and all that fun stuff and rerun all the disasters that happened when you did work together, which is always a satisfying and cathartic thing to do. Um, and it's lovely. I wonder, um, uh, Amanda, just before we close, um, if there are people um, who remain unconvinced, they've listened to the podcast and think, well, Amanda seems brilliant um, and all of this personal boardroom stuff, it sounds like it would be really helpful, um, but it's probably too late at the end of the day. You know, I'm I'm here and I'm at the top of my game and it's mm-hmm. I'm a CEO and it's never really been something that I've had to lean into. So why should I bother? What, what would be your sort of, is, is it ever too late? Uh, absolutely not. I, I mean, I think... It's really interesting. So some of the very senior people we've spoken to um, have said, actually, one of the one of the problems in becoming in sort of rising to the top of your game, if you like, is that um, it's harder to get people to challenge you um, and you have to actually ask for it. Mm. And and I think most chief executives are. you know, in a way, thinking about really, really complicated, really difficult, really kind of big challenges. Mm. And they need people around them that they trust to give them 
the kind of feedback and the kind of challenge, but they also need people that are so sources of new possibility and, and hope. And I think however senior you are in your organization, if you're just locked into, um, in a way, a, a kind of a schedule of commitments as a chief executive, where you're just going from meeting to meeting to meeting, I think you can start to lack that kind of feedback and challenge and inspiration and ideas and awareness that um, that people in your organization, I mean, think about the kind of the service leader, thinking about all the people that they lead inside the organization, understanding what they think about what's going on, I think requires you. And I think and many chief executives do it and do it brilliantly to keep reaching out and to be curious and to listen and to get ideas and to ask questions of other people. I think the day you kind of sit in, in your large office and in the corner and, and look over, you know, a, a, a beautiful kind of skyline around you in that kind of splendid isolation, I, I, I think in some ways it's, you know, you, it's, it's uninteresting after a while. I think most chief executives push themselves really hard to, to continue to, to find inspiration and find new ideas. Um, and I think the people they talk to, the resource that exists around them, I think is a, is a great place for that. Um, and my experience I is the more senior people we work with, actually, the more they recognize the value and the more, you know, they, they quickly see that actually a framework, if you like, like a personal boardroom for them in their job um, actually just makes a lot of sense. Networking needs to rebrand is my conclusion. It's sort of if you typed networking into one of those stock image search libraries, you would see probably two men probably in a suit shaking hands over a, obviously a deal. A, a better image maybe for people to think about would be somebody smiling and listening. Um, and as a, a whole entirely different sort of energy. Amanda, it's been completely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so, so much for your time. Um, and hopefully we will hear lots and lots of brilliant feedback from people um, who are applying your theories or just asking questions about how the heck they do this thing better um, about networking and building their own connections. Thank you so much. Amanda Scott, co-founder of The Personal Boardroom. All the rest. Thank you. <laughs>